poetically proven podcast. Marketing and poetry join forces. Okay. Uh, hi, everyone, and welcome to the second episode of the Poetically Proven podcast, which aims to bring together poetry and marketing. So I'm alternating every month between a poet who works in marketing and a marketer who happens to love poetry. Uh, and sometimes the lines are just much more blurred than that. So this month's guest is Dr. Stephen Doubleton, who is the head of digital marketing at Conical an award-winning agency that specializes in professional services marketing. Um, and so Stephen got in touch with me actually after the first uh, podcast because he happens to fall in that category of marketers who happen to love poetry, which is great. Um, and he was telling me about his uh, PhD and it was titled uh, Social Privacy, the Perceptions of Valence, Relationships and Space on Online Social Networking Services. And uh, the reason why he brought it up is because Richard Brautigan's poem, All Watched Over by Machines of Love and Grace, played quite an influential part in it. So welcome, Stephen. Thank you very much for having me on here, Claire. Uh, well, thank you for joining us. I um, Yeah, that PhD title was just like super intriguing. So I really want to chat some more about it with you <laughs> soon. Um, but first, before we, we talk about all of that, and I know there's lots to talk about, uh, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about Conical and what your role entails. Sure. Well, uh, as you've already said, I'm, I'm head of digital over at Conical. Uh, we work B2B mainly. However, we do have some uh, B2C clients at the moment. We're sort of uh, going through a slightly transitional uh, period at the moment where we're sort of moving and expanding into some other sort of uh, industries and sectors. We do a lot of work with uh, tech at the moment, uh, enterprise technology mainly. And what I do over there, I, I handle all the sort of digital aspects of the accounts from SEO to PPC, social media. Obviously, as you can probably tell by my title of uh, my PhD, I, mm. I have quite an interest in social media. <laughs> and also get into sort of data marketing and data mining uh, sort of things, doing some predictive modeling, things like that. Um, yeah, lots of hats. So, yeah, yeah, lots, lots, lots of hats, but we've got a lot of smart people over there who who help in various different ways. So together we've got a pretty, pretty decent team over there. Brilliant. <laughs> Cool. Um, so yeah, let's talk about that Brautigan poem because I, I don't want to put that off any longer. Um, <laughs> I, I was wondering if you'd mind reading it first so that everybody listening knows what we're talking about before we get into it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, but before I get into it, I just want to just point out that it was written in 1967. And there is a tendency when reading this poem to think of it as, at, at this moment in time. And I've, I've sent this poem to friends before and I've asked them what their opinions are without telling them the, the period of time when it was written. And they think that it's ironic. Um, so hopefully as, as, as you and as the listeners hear it, they, they will sort of get what I mean by that. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just get into the poem. So the poem is called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. I like to think, and the sooner the better of a cybernetic meadow where mammals and computers live together in mutual programming harmony, like pure water touching clear sky. I like to think right now, please, of a cybernetic forest filled with pines and electronics where deer stroll peacefully past computers as if they were flowers with spinning blossoms. 
I like to think it has to be of a cybernetic ecology where we are free of our labours and joined back to nature, returned to our mammal brothers and sisters and all watched over by machines of loving grace. Excellent. So when did you first come across this poem? So there is an Adam Curtis documentary of the same name that was released a few years (laughs) ago, um, I think around... 2014, 15, I should know that. Um, and his, his documentary is called All Watched Over by Machines of Love and Grace. It's, it's, it's a three-parter. Um, so <laughs> I, I came across this poem first while watching, while watching this documentary. Um, so a, a lot of the ideas and things that I will discuss are touched on in that documentary. It's excellent. I highly recommend it to anyone to go and watch who has an interest in, in the history of technology essentially. But um, my, my PhD was primarily concerned with social media. And I found that there was a tendency when discussing social media with, with, with friends, with colleagues, was to think of it as a very recent phenomenon, uh, something that only existed for a few years. And therefore, the ideas we had about it were only formed within the last few years, essentially. However, when I, when I watched this documentary and I heard, heard these words and read sort of around it, I discovered that our ideas around technology have, have sort of been maintained for, for many, many years. And the early movements around the 1960s, around techno-utopianism, so the idea mm. that technology is created uh, in order to improve society uh, in order to bring society towards a sort of utopic society have have sort of continued and a lot of our ideas around social media uh, especially the people who uh, create uh, social media platforms who create social networks they tend to go into it as well with the idea that they are creating some form of free utopic society so i became very, very interested in these uh, movements of the early 60s. So Browskin was kind of part of a counterculture uh, movement where they, they essentially viewed that technology would somehow decentralise democracy and technology could somehow be used in order to, to facilitate uh the sort of democratic process to facilitate government to to bring everything into some form of essentially stability that an idea that the world is instable um and it's in it's in flux and it, it needs taming and what can we tame it with well we can chuck loads of technology at it until we tame the world until we bring about stability and, and until until people are somehow more equal and until governments are somehow working more on behalf of the people. And we see these, these ideas echoed in, in how people discuss social media now. The idea that social media is bringing about a, a, a more free uh, society, one where there is less centralization of, of democracy, where where everyone has a say and everyone can make their voice heard and somehow that has influence and somehow that could bring about a form of stability that we haven't 
haven't previously had. Yeah, that's Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. But, uh, but something that is often forgotten is that these counterculture movements in, in, in the 60s, most of them failed, and most of them failed incredibly quickly. <laughs> and a lot of the counterculture movements were based around communes, uh, people who would, who, who would go and, and live together as an alternative society somewhere, and they would try and live without formal uh, structure of governance without without any formal sort of rules and they would try and sort things out in sort of town hall type meetings so these people would be living together and they would come together to cook together etc and then if they had a problem they would they would come together and they would they would talk it out essentially and, and and no one person would have power over anyone else but they failed incredibly quickly for for the simple fact that you still got bullies and you still got people who who wanted power and you still got mm. people who, who who came along and 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 wanted to disrupt and wanted to bring about some form of instability so these counterculture movements that were sort of built around this idea that you could just chuck loads of technology at something and and, and so you brought stability kind of neglected this human element in that humans, generally speaking, are instable and some humans aren't nice. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we, we see it with, I, I, I think we see it now with uh, social media quite, quite a lot in that if you hear how Mark Zuckerberg talks about Facebook, mm. uh, especially in the early days, you can hear... You can hear the idea that money for him didn't matter. He was saying it was never about the money. It was always about freeing information, connecting people, mm. making this platform that people could use to sort of further their lives. And they're very noble aims, but we are seeing that despite these being the intentions, that the human element has almost disrupted those noble aims and it has brought undesirable aspects of human existence to this platform that was originally intended to be this incredibly stable, free in place. And one of the biggest areas that we're seeing that now is uh, in the rise of fake news. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it's interesting how history just keeps on repeating itself, that, that pattern that you've just described. It, it kept on making me think of the French Revolution, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Because um, my, my, my own PhD was on um, prints in the French Revolution, like satirical images and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff, which I, I've often viewed as an early form of social media too, actually, because <laughs> it's quite democratic, quite, you know, done a lot faster than any other type of printing was done because it was all etchings, you know, rather than laborious uh, engravings and all that kind of stuff. So more people could be involved in these quick fire images and so forth and there's a lot of memes recurring throughout them as well <laughs> wow. so I see a lot of parallels definitely with that kind of stuff and of course we all know how the French Revolution turned out which is <laughs> <laughs> started off very you know utopic idealized you know yay democracy and then yeah uh, lots of heads chopped off and, and people murdered brutally. And <laughs> let's hope it's not quite the same pattern. Yeah, here. yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's hope it's not quite like that. But it's, it's 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 interesting that uh, that that the first thing 
uh, a lot of time that we that we go to when, when we talk about new technologies, like, like you were just talking about there, is the idea that it will somehow bring about some form of freedom, which is mm. which is different to the freedom that, that we have now. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, but I'm I'm not entirely sure that 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 will will exist or can exist through through technological change purely on itself i think there has to be a, mm. a, a far greater drive of societal change in order for anything like that to become uh, effective yeah no i i completely agree i mean the technology is a is a tool it's how we use that tool that's the the crucial thing i'm just trying to remember now who it was that was saying a quote back when um armed weapons were becoming more efficient and people were saying how you know in the past you used to kill each other it was up close and now it's like further and further removed and this was uh, something that was said in the 18th century or something so it wasn't it's not a recent mm. um you know gun control quote or anything else like that but just about how technology changed behaviors and changed how people were relating to each other with weapons obviously nobody's going to say that weapons is going to bring about a utopia really but you know, it's sort no, of similar no. again i think in that <laughs> sort of usage um yeah and sort of putting the blame on on the on the tool <laughs> rather than yeah the i mean it's 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 interesting because uh th- th- there is a tendency now i think to think of things in terms of technological determinism that being the the technology is what determines the outcome, what determines the action. Mm. But I, I definitely think it, it's more about what what is put into it. Um, so that a, a lot of what I was exploring in in my thesis was how how individuals related to technology. And in order to discover that, I had six uh, research participants who I would meet up with every couple of weeks and chat to them for a couple of hours basically and record what we said for a couple of hours about how it was that they interacted with technology and and what the technology meant for them mm. and what i found incredibly interesting was that they just hadn't thought about it <laughs> we were talking a lot about um social media their use of twitter came up quite a lot and a lot of them just hadn't hadn't put any thought into why they were using Twitter, what they were trying to get from it and what it was that was, was giving to them. But a lot of the reason they were using it is because their friends were, they felt they should. Mm. And when, when they actually thought about what it was that they were trying to get from going on to social media was that they were looking for a way to explore their own identity mm in a safe environment. And what they classified as a safe environment was an environment that was away from friends and family, Hmm. which I find find incredibly fascinating. They had interests and hobbies that they didn't feel safe or comfortable discussing Hmm. with friends or family, or they felt it was inappropriate or, or just that it wouldn't be the right thing to do with a particular set of friends. So they were seeking out strangers, people who they had had never met before, in order to indulge this interest or hobby that they had safely, because they didn't have the opportunity to do it in in a face-to-face sort of of environment. And that that really made me question um, 
what a lot of uh, print media news and, and, and journalist rhetoric was about uh, an individual's idea of what is privacy, essentially. And a lot of times social media has been touted as being anti-privacy. It's, it's, it's where you go to lose your privacy. But this was kind of this was kind of quite the opposite because this was an incredibly private thing yeah. that this that these people had uh, it was so private that they couldn't talk about it with their family <laughs> or their friends so they were actually going and seeking out social media yeah. in order to experience uh, uh, some form of some form of privacy so in, in many ways I, I, there's definitely that, that yeah that that yeah, that contradiction definitely yeah. exists. And I'm thinking even on a, a lesser level, not even talking about, you know, these message boards and these private groups and everything else that people are going to do their hobbies. But I think social media also allows people to be a different version of themselves, you know, a version that they might not feel brave to experiment with, Yeah, you know, in real life. Yeah, you're familiar with... But that they can put on, you know. And, are you yeah. familiar with Irving Goffman? No, I'm so not. Irving Goffman, he, he writes a book called The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. Uh, really fascinating book. And essentially, he talks about different frames by view which you, you view the world and, and different uh, uh, stages of which you present yourself. There's a front stage and a backstage. Sort of to yourself and your backstage is the very, hmm. the very personal, very private one. And you've got various different front stages by which you are always performing a different aspect of yourself in a different situation essentially so there's there is one self but your one self is made up of these very different sort of presentations of yourself that that, that you that you go out and perform to the world and you need to perform them in order to mm. sort of self-actualize but uh what, what i what i found the the aspect of this that I found interesting for what I do now, trying to bring this back to marketing for you, because I'm aware that uh, <laughs> I'm aware that I've gone off on a on a little bit of a little bit of a tangent, is the idea that if if uh, people are going on to social media to uh, indulge a certain interest or to be uh, to, to perform a different aspect of themselves. I think if you're more aware of that as a marketer, I think you can have not only be more successful in the content that you put out on social media, but something which I, I think is very important is you can be more ethical in your approach to how you are interacting with people on mm. social media through, through these platforms. Because if you have a respect for the basically for the fact that when someone is going onto a social network, they are trying to, they are trying to gain something from it. They are trying to explore an aspect of themselves. They are trying to feel something positive. And if you can help with that, if you can create content, if you can create a strategy that allows your followers on social media or, or even if they're seeing an advert that you put up on, on, on Instagram or whatever it may be, if you could be respectful of, of, of that, then I think you can create better campaigns. I think you can have more successful marketing campaigns than if you are just trying to shove your message in front of people for the sake of getting it out there. Oh, yeah. Type of thing. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and ultimately, it's their space. It's, it's, it's not yours as marketer. It's, it's, it's their personal space 
that you are that you have yeah. almost been asked to go into. It's a you space, don't want to be interrupting them. Don't want to be interrupting space. them, and <laughs> and also it, it it means a lot to them. It means a lot to a, a lot of people. Uh, social media is is an important part of their life. Um, I mean, I, I know there's going to be a lot of people where social media isn't an important part of their life. Uh, mm. However, when they do sometimes go on Facebook and take off Facebook or wherever it might be, it is an activity that they are doing for for pleasure. It's not something that you're necessarily going to go and, and do because you you have to. It's something that something that people actually say right. I'm going to allocate this time of my life to go and do this thing. And if you could be respectful and be aware that you are sort of interrupting that time. And sometimes you may have been invited in if they follow your page, but if they don't follow your page, perhaps you haven't been invited in. And if you're just a little bit more aware of that, I think you can have a lot more success. Mm. No, I I agree completely. (laughs) It was making me think a little bit about, um, poets behaviors though not just marketers Um, (laughs) (laughs) because sometimes you know when you're um well a poet and also a marketer and all sorts of other hats but the lines can be a little bit blurred on various uh, social media platforms it's got to the point for me on my facebook where my bio is my email address and i encourage people to use that (laughs) rather than private messaging me on facebook because as you say it feels like an interruption I, i do use you know facebook for some promotional stuff and to connect obviously with other people who are also poets around the world etc but I also see it as my personal space and I want to go there to look at stupid pictures of cats and (laughs) other things and not necessarily have a poet asking me to review their book uh, or to do this and that for them whilst I'm you know looking at a cat Um, (laughs) poor cats Um, (laughs) (laughs) definitely I mean there there, there, there are some there are some marketing campaigns that I, I see that I think you've you've completely missed the mark here, and I, I think the best example I'm 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 probably going to get it wrong as to who it was. It was either McDonald's or Burger King. Um, they had a promotion whereby if you unfriended, I think ten people mm-hmm. on on Facebook, then you you got a free burger. Wow! This is an app that you and they are actively encouraging people to. To un- unfriend people. And, I don't know about that. I'm going to have to check that out. It's amazing. <laughs> it's incredibly disruptive and I think completely missed the mark of, of what people are actually there on Facebook to do at that time. They were there to, to actively interact with people and you've got a campaign that's encouraging people to not interact. It's, uh, it's, it, was, it was a very odd, odd thing and almost insulting to, to, to people who were on. On, on, yeah. on social network at, at, at the time and it does completely miss mark but however then then you get some that I, I i see and i think that's that's fantastic that really slots in naturally i think mm. snapchat filters are a brilliant example of that yeah. company sponsored snapchat filters where you're basically p- playing with the brand the brand has become part of the activity you were going to do anyway which is you know take a picture of yourself with a filter over you whatever that might be yeah, but the the brand has sort of just been in, in, inserted into that in a way that doesn't disrupt or and, and doesn't interrupt that person's time that they have dedicated to to use Snapchat. And I I, I look at that and I think that's that's a brilliant example of, of of a marketer having respect essentially for 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 what the uh, for what the users have gone there to do. All right. 
Excellent. Uh, I thought we could go back to a bit of poetry now. Um, so, yeah, I was yes, wondering if you yes, could yes. just describe, you know, your relationship to poetry and if you've read anything you like recently. I know you mentioned to me something, so I hope you'll <laughs> take the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, my, uh, what, what I find interesting about poetry is that when, when I was growing up, we were taught poetry in school and you're taught it at a young age and around the age of, I don't know, I think 14, you kind of stop mm. being taught poetry. And there's this really big gap where I don't, I, I, I don't think, I, I can't remember anyone who was writing poetry for teenagers, essentially. There was, there was a lot of poetry that was written for me when I was younger and then there's, there seems to be quite a lot of poetry around for me as an adult and, and quite a lot of meaningful poetry that, that I discover around around technology now. But when I was a teenager, there, were, there, there didn't seem to be anything. So I sort of lost my way a bit. I, I was very interested as a child. And then around a teen, I, mm. I, I lost my way. And I thought, no, poetry, that's not cool. That's not for me. I'm, I'm not going to go and, out and actively seek it. And it was only really when I started to engage uh, at, when I was... Uh, a younger adult when I was doing my master's degree that I started to explore and see a lot of poetry that was written about technology, a lot of poetry that was written for technology. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a, a, a great little book mm. called uh, Cybertext, which is written by uh, Espin Arseth, which is about hypertext language, essentially uh, early internet hypertext language and the exploration of art oh, through cool. hypertext markup, uh, essentially. So linking around different subjects. I got really interested with that. And there was some early attempts to get machines to, to write art and to create art. And a lot of the time when, when people were getting, uh, when, when researchers were getting machines to create art, they were literally going for pictures, graphics type of thing, video, uh, sometimes music. But Google, a couple of years ago, decided that, right, I think it's time to get some, uh, to get some robots to write poetry. And they were essentially trying to work out natural language AI, and I think they, they still are sort of investing quite heavily in this, how to get a machine to speak, to write in natural language. So I did a bit of research a couple of years ago, I think it was 2015, 2016, where they fed a machine <laughs> a lot of romance novels, which is an interesting way to go down. A, a lot of trashy romance novels, I must say, as well. Not, not, just, not just the proper stuff. And uh, they wanted to get this machine to try and write poetry in in natural language to try and sort of pass the, the Turin test, so to so to speak, to make it seem as though a, a human had actually written it. And in order to do this, what they had to do is they would write the first line of a poem and they would write the last line of the poem and they would let the uh, machine, the robot, <laughs> fill the rest in, essentially, so it'd get from line number one to line number two. So uh, there's a little poem here that, that is, that is written by this, uh, by this bot. And the first line they wrote is, there is no one else in the world. And the last 
line they wrote for it was I turned to him. So I'll read the poem in full and the bits in between are what, what was filled in by the machine. So there is no light. Sorry, there is no one else in the world. There is no one else in sight. They were the only ones who mattered. They were the only ones left. He had to be with me. She had to be with him. I had to do this. I wanted to kill him. I started to cry. I turned to him. <laughs> and, uh... It's quite sinister, actually. <laughs> interesting I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty, uh, the minds of AI. <laughs> I mean, they're pretty interesting uh, poems. I think a lot of people likened them to... Um, is it uh, Douglas Adams, The Hitchhiker's Guide, the uh, poetry written by the, um, I can't remember what they're oh, called okay, now. okay, yeah. The Vogons, that's it. A lot of people uh, liken them to the um, to the poetry written by those uh, those characters because they're just just terrible, terrible poems. But, I mean, they're written by a machine. I've got another one, another one here. Let's see. Uh, this one is particularly fantastic. So it's, uh, no, he said, no, he said. No, I said. I know, she said. Thank you, she said. Come with me, she said. Talk to me, she said. Don't worry about it, she said. <laughs> oh, it's very dry. Very <laughs> love that. Have you have you heard of um, poet tweet? It just made me think of that as well. There, there was a fad where people did enter their Twitter handles into it quite a lot. No. So basically, you just put in your Twitter handle and you select uh, the format, and it'll come up with uh, a poem from your tweets. You'll just put them into a line. Um, right, I've just okay. put one in for my for my Twitter account. Um, I should have done one for you, actually. <laughs> but it's called Be Unrequited, and it's a sonnet from my <laughs> tweets. So it's slightly sinister as well, I think. <laughs> well, poetry and marketing together. Excellent. Every week, really rooting for her. Pizza ordered, slump imminent. You what, mate? And have received no response. Be difficult thing to negotiate. Makes sense. Got me exiting the hairdressers. Beauty was surprisingly difficult on being picked for primers. <laughs> Sailing around the Northern Islands. Time I get paid, this is happening as we clink plastic vegetables. <laughs> it's quite odd. Um, it sort of rhymes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Have you heard of uh, there's a there's a book I, I got given it for Christmas. It's called The Beautiful Poetry of Donald Trump. Oh yeah, I've got that one. Some of those, some of those. I, I think I think it's essentially the same sort of thing, isn't it? Almost yeah. automatically written from uh, from 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 his tweets and things like that. But it's what, what, I, what I find fascinating about these things is is the words that they pick out. Essentially, whenever you get something al algorithmic or, or, or a machine to, to come up with something, and mm. when they look for frequency of words mentioned and things like that, and then go with right, that's that, that must be what we should what we should what we should go for. You, you end up with some very non-human sounding, human sounding yeah. <laughs> prose. It's, it's 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 sort of a bizarre mix, and I, I never I never quite know how to receive it, whether to be impressed by the technology or whether to laugh at the technology, because it's sort of a stepping stone. I mean, I know what you, what you read out there, your, your one, it's, 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 it's based on things that you've, you've tweeted. So it's, 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 it's definitely got, got the human element there, but once it's put together, it sounds, 
mm. incredibly bizarre. Uh, <laughs> but so, so you kind of want to laugh at it, but at the same time, the technology is clearly there and it's clearly getting better and better and better. And there's going to be, there's going to be a point where it stops being a, a sort of a, a sideshow humorous thing. And we actually have poetry and art being created by, by machines um, I mean, this, the, the, the Google ones that I read out, they're, they're only going to get better. They're going to start putting more and more in. It's, it's, mm. it's like with the, uh, the, the deep fakes uh, phenomena. I, I don't know if you've been following the news around uh, deep fakes, the idea of taking photos of someone and, and, mm. and, and a machine essentially takes a composite of their face and then inserts it onto someone else's face mm. who is in a video. So that the, the video the actor has basically entirely been changed oh, wow. and <laughs> yeah this this technology has been used so far for for all sorts of things uh mainly uh unfortunately mainly it's been used to insert the faces of of famous uh, celebrities into pornography oh, of so a huge <laughs> ethical dilemma around that but also it's been used more humorously, perhaps, to insert Nicolas Cage <laughs> into lots of different scenes in lots of different films. So you've got lots of YouTube videos now where every actor yeah. and actress in the film is, is Nicolas Cage. And it's it's easy to laugh at that and go, that this is, but it's this is funny. Too, but... It's disturbing <laughs> too. Plus also, uh, at what point do we uh, do we have where, where video, in that instance, becomes... Uh, uh, where video just completely stops being proof of something happening if, if, if it could be manipulated that easily mm. and I think we have to think the same for these 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 machines that are that are reading and writing text at, at, at what point does that become so easy to do by anyone and 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 the technology becomes so widely available that we cease to have the ability to delineate between what is written by by a human and uh, and what is written by a machine and and how does that impact art creation? I mean, at what point does that stop becoming art? Because I'm, I'm fairly certain these 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 poetry these poems that I wrote by uh, that, that I read by the uh, that were written by the Google algorithm. I'm, I'm fairly certain that they they can claim that as as art that was created by the researchers. But at what point does that become art that was created by the machine and, and the machine almost takes ownership? Well, I, for one, uh, welcome these new overlords of, uh, of art. <laughs> Just putting this out there right now for any of them listening to this. <laughs> Just in case they're listening, yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think it's quite exciting actually to see in what direction at the moment they're obviously mimicking existing patterns of uh, of artistry, but it will come to a point where I think you know they'll you know create new forms, new ways of uh, you know writing or painting or, or whatever, and that will be really interesting for everybody else, I think, as well, just to see what direction that takes us in. I'm being cautiously optimistic here, but... <laughs> <laughs> have, have you ever sort of integrated any sort of any sort of algorithmic stuff into, into your into your poetry um, that, that you create? Not mine. I know a few poets who have, and it looks rather fun. I know quite a few poets who've uh, experimented with bots in particular on, on Twitter um, and uh, mm. Facebook bots as well, and that's... Um, 
rather good fun. I haven't quite had the patience to do that myself yet, but (laughs) (laughs) I'd like to at some point. Yeah, definitely. I've I've played around with like, yeah, hypertext and all that kind of stuff because it's rather good fun. Um, Like, yeah, just text adventures in general, I think, are, you know, good entertainment. It's sort of very choose your own adventure, really. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I've, I, I, I love, I love the choose your own. When I was when I was lecturing, uh, that was one of the first things that I got. I got students to create in the uh, in, in the digital media production uh, units was to was to do a, a choose your own adventure. Mm-hmm. The idea of a story that changes based on your input sort of is uh, sort of fascinating. Yeah. And, uh, a, a chap in a, a researcher in my department then went one step further and uh, took a newspaper and did an entirely augmented reality sort of interactive choose your own adventure with a with a newspaper where you could sort of hover hover your phone mm-hmm. over the top of a picture of a politician and it would tell you who their corporate donors had been <laughs> and then you could go and uh, sort of read the story behind uh, the, the news article in a little bit more depth a little bit more difference and get a little bit more extra information sort of e- easily at, at your fingertips with this all sort of augmented experience. And yeah. it's a fascinating direction to, to take the technology. And uh, it's just, it's just when, 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 when it will take off and become mainstream. Yeah. That's, that's sort of what, what he's kind of waiting no, for at the exciting minute. exciting at the moment. Augmented reality on my phone is very much limited to making Star Wars characters dance, you know, with my laptop and things like that. But I'm very excited for when it will become, yeah, a lot more mainstream. There's so many other things that, you know, if you didn't have, like, particular design skills or film skills, you you would feel they were out of reach. But that today, you know, there's so many tools and software that makes it really easy for anybody to do that. And I suppose that'll be the next step, hopefully. Um yeah. Maybe that will be uh, maybe that'll be your next thing. You could do an augmented poetry. reality sort that of could poetry be really experience. Fun, <laughs> Especially if you don't have to leave the house. It's great. <laughs> um, this kind of segues nicely into um my question because I, I'm just always looking for new, you know, apps and tools and things like that for marketing. So um yeah, so I was wondering if you have any favorites that you've discovered recently that you'd like to share? You're probably going to be really annoyed with me because I've completely ignored the word new uh, that's okay. that's there okay. because there's <laughs> there's there's a tool that whenever someone comes in for a whenever someone goes for a job interview and they're asked, do you know how to use Microsoft Excel? Mm-hmm. A lot of people say yes, but uh, what they really mean is I know how to use yeah. a little bit of Microsoft Excel and. Excel is one of the most important tools for anyone who wants to work in digital marketing to to get to know and use. It is incredibly powerful for for, for reports, for analyzing stats, for presenting them well. But also it's it's, it's one of the most useful tools for creating uh, data to make actionable, uh, to make decisions basically, to make them actionable. And if, if, if... there is anyone listening who is who wants to get into marketing, who is sort of an undergraduate, who is working towards a degree in marketing, hone your Excel skills because they will be incredibly, incredibly useful uh, to you for your entire career. Just hone them, hone them, get yourself making some beautiful reports and working out some interesting stats. 
because once you've got your Excel skills down, you can go and use a bit of software that I use called okay. uh, Weka, which is W-E-K-A. And that is free open source machine learning. So you can use that software for free. You can feed in as much data as you've got uh, about your customers, provided you have the correct permissions to feed yeah. the data in, obviously. And um, you can then use that data to do predictive learning. Um, so you can work out lifetime future value of people, essentially, uh, which is incredibly useful if you can work out how uh, how much a, a client or a customer is going to be worth based on their early interactions with you on a website, especially if you're a, a consumer brand. To be able to work that out is incredibly useful. Uh, you could do things like nearest neighbor sampling. Uh, that's the sort of things where... It says people who bought this product were more likely to buy this product, et cetera, et cetera. So it looks mm. for sort of trends in things that people are purchasing and you can present nearest neighbor wow. type of stuff. And uh, you could do all, all sorts of different sort of machine learning uh, stuff and predictive modeling stuff with it. It's free. It's, it's open source. You need, you need a decent knowledge of Excel and, and a bit of knowledge of some sort of database software like Access or something like that to get it, to get it working perfectly. You can create some incredibly powerful stuff. It's 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 only yeah. as good as the data that you put in, and uh, there's lots of there's lots of books written about it that you can get. There's lots of blogs written about it that can help you work out how to do certain things. And I, I think this is one of the uh, I think this is one of the misconceptions that I want to that I want to debunk as well is that you you don't need. You don't need a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience to, in, in order to, to utilize these tools in, in, in some ways. So obviously, it helps. It speeds up the process if you have that knowledge, if, 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 you have those, if you have that experience doing it, and you can do more. But if you want to sort of if, – if you're a little in, independent business and you want to start dipping your toe in, 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 into data, into analytics, mm. you, you, you can do it. This this software is out there, and you you can you can get it, and you can read up resources for free, and you can have a go, and you can see what see what you can get from it. Obviously, make sure you've got the yeah. permission to process people's we won't data. GDPR, that is, that is but... key, I'm, I'm not advocating. <laughs> yeah, I'm not advocating anyone does this yeah. without permissions to process data. But just just have a go and see what you can find out about your mm. customers. I mean, even if even if you only find out a little bit of information about um, nearest neighbor type of thing, it can help. It can help. It can help small local businesses. It can help. It can help larger businesses, obviously. But it's one of those things you sort of just have to have a go at. And these things are out there. Okay, so we're running out of time. So I'm just going to end by asking you what's next for you. <laughs> Well, obviously, I'm um, sticking with Conical for quite a while. We've uh, got a lot of good work going on with our going on with our clients at the moment, which is which is fantastic. But also, uh, on the 18th of April, Conical are hosting a conference at the University of Bedfordshire in Luton, and the conference is called uh, Future Media, Future Marketing, and essentially, it's, it's aims to bring together industry and uh, academics from marketing disciplines to discuss uh, the future of marketing with them. But also we aim to get uh, industry representatives to come as delegates as well as academic uh, representatives to come as delegates to learn a bit more about how to future-proof uh, your strategies for any sort of future media that comes along. 
And uh, it should be, it's, 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 it's a one-day conference. You can come for the morning session or the afternoon session. And uh, there's more information at conicalconference.co.uk if you're interested in coming along. Brilliant. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, Steve, for that. Um, thank you very much for having me on. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Uh, talk to you all soon. Um, bye-bye.